Blog Talk Radio. Monitoring and Informing Best Practice Pathways to the Triple Aim. Welcome, everyone. I'm Greg Masters, the producer and co-host of the show. And joining me in the virtual studio is my colleague, Fred Goldstein, principal co-host and co-founder of Pop Health Week. Hey, Fred. Hey, Greg. How are you doing today? Well, <laughs> we're doing the, the shuttle. Uh, where are you today? I'm actually in Virginia Beach. Virginia Beach. Okay, you, you didn't travel too far. Well, for those of you not familiar with my colleague, Fred, he is a veteran healthcare executive and the president of Accountable Health LLC, a consulting firm in Jacksonville, Florida, and past chair and current board member of the Population Health Alliance, PHA, convening in Washington, D.C., November 2nd through the 4th, 2015, for the PHA Forum. Don't miss it. Fred's experience spans hospital and health system administration, HMO general management, and is the founder of a disease management company. My background includes leadership and consulting support for hospitals, health systems, capitated medical groups, IPAs, PHOs, MSOs, and several hospital physician joint ventures. I publish and principally author ACOWatch.com, founded Health Innovation Media, and I'm known on Twitter as to Health Guru. Today, we resume our regular coverage of issues in the emerging population health domain, including evidence-based best practices with key thought leaders, innovators, academicians, and vendors in the space. Our special guest is Dr. Russell Rothman, Professor of Internal Medicine, Pediatrics, and Health Policy. He serves as the Assistant Vice Chancellor for Population Health Research at Vanderbilt, and is also the director of the Vanderbilt Center for Health Services Research and chief of the Internal Medicine and Pediatrics Section. As director of the Center for Health Services Research, he oversees a center that engages over 150 faculty involved in health services, quality, behavioral health, disparities, and other research areas. His current research focuses on improving care for adult and pediatric patients with diabetes, obesity, and other chronic diseases. He has been the principal investigator on over $35 million in extramural funding and has authored over 100 manuscripts. He is funded by the NIH to examine the role of literacy and numeracy in patients with diabetes and obesity. He is also the principal investigator of PCORI, funded Mid-South Clinical Data Research Network, which engages over 50 hospitals and thousands of ambulatory practices reaching patients across the nation. Dr. Rothman received his bachelor's medical and public policy degrees from Duke University. He completed a combined internal medicine and pediatrics residency at Duke in 2000. From 2000 to 2002, he served as Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholar at the University of North Carolina 
in 2002, he joined the faculty at Vanderbilt. And with that introduction, Fred, over to you. Help us get to know this key industry researcher. Thank you so much, Greg. And uh, Dr. Rothman, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. How are things going? Thank you. Uh, good afternoon. Great to be here. Fantastic. With That's quite the uh, bio you have, and obviously you've been involved in this for, for quite a while. As we think about population health and we think about you know how that's become a buzzword today and engagement's become a buzzword today, we also have this buzzword out there that seems to be picking up a lot of steam around health literacy. Why is that becoming such a hot topic in the industry? Yes, I, I, I think um, there are several reasons why uh, health literacy has become such an important area, uh, both for research and, and for uh, improving clinical care and health system uh, innovation. Uh, in part, I think that uh, we're doing a lot more patient-centered care, and uh, people have realized that a patient's health literacy or their ability to understand and act on health information is very important in helping patients to understand how to take care of their health and improving uh, health outcomes. Uh, I also think that, you know, in the current health system where we're seeing such rapid transformation, we're asking our patients and their families to do a lot more to take care of their own health, whether it's related to health prevention or to uh, disease management. So, for example, patients have shorter time with the doctor in the doctor's office. When they get admitted to the hospital, hospital stays are getting shorter, and we're sending people home quicker than ever before. And we're sending people home on more medications than ever before and asking them to do a lot more uh, complicated tasks to take care of their health, whether it's reading nutrition labels or understanding how to take medications or other health information, we're just putting a lot of responsibility onto patients and their families to navigate a complex health system, to understand many different health issues, uh, to help take care of their own health. And then finally, you know, we're seeing a significant increase in the diversity of the population in this country where, you know, we have a huge diversity in the education level of, of people in this country, as well as in uh, the cultural and language diversity of this country, which is making it more challenging in how we communicate health information. So when you talk about literacy, people typically interpret that to mean reading and writing, but you mentioned acting upon it as well. So in a broader context, that's what you consider a health literate individual also having the ability to act upon the information? Yes, that's right. Health literacy is really much more of a functional skill. So it's the ability for a patient to read or to be told something, to take that information in, to process and understand that information, and then to act on that information in an appropriate way. And the Institute of Medicine has a really nice uh, definition of this, but health literacy really includes a host of different skills. So it includes one's reading and writing skills, but it also includes one's uh, oral literacy or listening and speaking skills, as well as one's numeracy or math skills. And so what is the impact of, say, poor health literacy on the, on the country or on health care costs, et cetera? 
Yes, so over the last 15 years, there's actually been a series of studies to really document how important health literacy is as a health issue. So patients who have lower literacy skills are more likely to uh, be admitted to the hospital to seek emergency room care. They're at higher risk to have worse control of their chronic diseases, such as diabetes or HIV or other chronic conditions. They're less likely to follow uh, preventive recommendations, such as receiving vaccines. Um, and they're even at higher risk for mortality. And these studies have really shown that health literacy is an important factor, even after taking into account other patient factors. So even after taking into account a patient's education level, their insurance status, their socioeconomic status, we find that their level of health literacy is very important in predicting their health. And you also mentioned in there this idea of numeracy, which you hear a little bit less about. Can you explain what that is? Yes. Numeracy, we think, is a very important component of overall literacy. And, and we've defined it as the ability for someone to understand and use numbers in daily life. And this also includes a host of different skills. So it includes basic arithmetic but it also includes a person's ability to perform estimation, to understand risk and probability, to deal with time and money, and to understand logic types of problems. And these issues actually come up a lot in healthcare. I mean, we talk to patients about their blood pressure, their weight, or their BMI. We talk to them about the risks of different procedures or treatments and trying to decide what to do. We ask them to read nutrition information. If they have diabetes, they may be uh, adjusting insulin based on their blood sugar reading. So uh, people are actually confronted by math issues in the healthcare system pretty much every day. And many patients, even those with good overall literacy skills, may have poor quantitative skills or mathematical skills, or they may just be very intimidated by math. Uh, many of us in the healthcare industry enjoy math and numbers, but we're, we're not the norm. So, so there's a lot of people that had a horrible time with math back in elementary school, and now whenever they see anything with numbers, they sort of break out in a cold sweat, and they don't want to deal with numbers. And here we are in healthcare, and often the very first thing we do with our patients is we start to talk to them about numbers, and that can be very intimidating and challenging for many of our patients. I've also heard some examples of some numeracy issues, um, especially when I was doing work in Medicaid, around things like even bus schedules, where maybe people don't have a good grasp of time skills. Is that also part of that as well? Yes, absolutely, and, and there were some large studies done by the U.S. Department of Education that, that documented that 30 to 40 percent of, of people in this country have difficulty with some of the basic skills that you just mentioned, things like figuring out how to fill out a deposit slip at the bank or figuring out how to read a bus schedule to see how much time it would take to get from point A to point C. So. You can imagine if people are struggling with those types of basic skills, how challenging it becomes for them to then 
try to uh, deal with all of the math that we put in front of them in the healthcare field. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating and amazing when you think about how broad that impact could be, both on their, the social determinant, the social aspects of their life, as well as the medical aspects in trying to uh, navigate through and and work in the healthcare system. So, what are some of the areas that you're researching in in particular at Vanderbilt? So we um, we have done a lot of research to document how challenging it is for patients. Um, to understand health information, whether it's written information, information that's electronically provided to patients, or even spoken information to patients. And then we've actually designed intervention studies to improve um, how we provide information to patients and their family, whether it's written information like documents that get handed to patients when they're in the clinic or at home, or even how we communicate to patients, teaching physicians and nurses and other health providers how to use plain language, how to reduce the amount of jargon we use when we speak to patients, how to simplify things like numbers by using, you know, traffic light types of motifs with a, a red for for you know red, yellow, and green type of motif, and also. Uh, using techniques such as the teach-back technique, where if you teach something to a patient, you actually ask them to teach it back to you to confirm they've understood uh, before they leave your office. So we work on communication skills um, to, that really help not only to improve how patients understand things, but also to help them to be motivated to change their behaviors um, and to set goals to improve their health. And we've also done this work using um, electronic means, so using web-based uh, tools for education and self-management support and mobile tools, whether it's text messaging interventions or using uh, smartphones um, to help support patients in their daily uh, lives. So as a provider or, say, a vendor out there doing a population health management program or a provider working with their individual patients, is there a way they should be assessing that person's health literacy? Well, there are tools out there for actually assessing a patient's uh, literacy skills, and uh, they, they're validated tools, and some of them can be administered uh, fairly quickly. Um, there's one called the newest vital sign, for example, that's basically an ice cream label and looks at how well people can understand uh, the ice cream label. Um, and, and so it can be helpful to uh, do this sometimes in part to open the eyes of the medical community to see how prevalent low literacy and low numeracy are. Um, but, um, you know, it's only of value if you then have a plan for how you're going to use that information. So, you know, if you identify that patients have lower literacy, you really need a plan for how you're going to improve your communication. And, and many would argue if you're working in a community where you know um, there's a lot of patients that might have low literacy or limited English proficiency, you need to really practice universal precautions, meaning you know, you need to assume all your patients may have low literacy skills, and you really need to improve your communication process, whether it's spoken communication, written communication, or electronic communication, so that all patients can 
understand what you're trying to convey and be motivated um, to take changes to improve their health. So we really advocate for that. And um, even patients with high literacy often prefer simplified forms of communication. So if a, a vendor or practice was wanting to then take those next steps, and you mentioned a number of different things, you know, simplification, um, visual examples, things like that. How would they, where would they go to find that information so that they could begin to incorporate best practices into their clinics or their programs? Well, um, there are some uh, tools out there for helping uh, groups to uh, develop their own uh, low literacy materials. For example, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality has a universal precautions health literacy toolkit um, that's very helpful. Um, and uh, there are some low literacy materials already available, for example, at the National Institute of Health, the National Library of, Me of Medicine uh, makes available some uh, low literacy education materials. And then, you know, there are some private companies now that are starting to um, build uh, educational materials and educational platforms with issues of health literacy in mind to really make sure that the material presented is going to be uh, not only easier to understand, but also motivating for patients around behavior change. So people can find a lot of this information on the web. Uh, as technologies become more prevalent, you know, with smartphones, et cetera, are you seeing things in that arena that excite you? Are they going to be more of a silver bullet potentially than other forms, or do you really need to look at it all? I, I think we need to continue to look at it all right now because you reach different populations with different approaches. So we still have many older patients or patients with lower socioeconomic status that uh, prefer paper-based, face-to-face communication, phone communication. But on the other hand, we're definitely seeing an explosion of the use of mobile technology, and, and I think more and more uh, that is going to be where things need to go. So um, we are doing more and more work using web-based and mobile platforms, and the tremendous uh, ability that you have with those tools as wearable tech, not only to provide information for patients, but to actually collect information about patients, whether it's the food they're eating or, you know, their steps or their sleep or, you know, um, uh, their blood sugars or other information that we can now collect through these mobile tools is uh, allowing us to more and more customize the education and behavior support that we can provide to patients and families. And, you know, I think we have to remember as health systems that, you know, patients spend 99.9% .9 of their time outside of the health system, whether it's at home or at work or, or in other scenarios. So we need to really be building tools that support um, patients where they are. So these newer tools actually are, are bi-directional. I know there's been the whole, you know, growing um, use of wearables and other devices that tend to be one-way 
information providers, but through a health literacy program, I guess you then take that data and can feed back appropriate messaging or other information to the individual based on what's coming in. Yes, I think that is the grand opportunity. I think the field is still young right now um, in terms of best understanding what information to collect, how to take that information from patients and, and turn it into meaningful information that patients can then and physicians can then use to improve health. So, you know, we're doing a lot of work and others are doing work in how to best bring messages back to patients because, you know, you don't want to overwhelm patients with too much information at one time. Um, you don't want to uh, discourage them <laughs> with certain bits of information. Um, and, and, you know, the other challenge with mobile technology, which I think we've all um, uh, realized uh, over time as you can get um, sort of jaded to the technology where it becomes a bit opaque to you over time if you keep getting the same messages over and over. So there's real questions about how do you rotate the messages to, to keep patients engaged? How do you put in um, uh, platforms that have novel approaches um, and ways to really keep uh, patients and, and families engaged in helping to take care of their health. That, that's fantastic. Are there any new technologies that particularly excite you or you think might have potential for for big changes in that area? Any particular things? Is it is it SMS texting? Is it an app? Um, any of those things? Well, I do think that um, the development of apps that uh, can um, uh, integrate your own personal information about your exercise, your diet, your medication adherence, uh, your blood sugars, for example, if you have diabetes, and give you back customized information is really going to be um, uh the most exciting area for uh, self-management support for, for patients and their families. Mm -hmm. And and you're doing a lot of work around obesity and diabetes now, and is that sort of the area you're focusing on in some of those different types of messaging approaches or things like that? Yes, our, our group has done a lot of work uh, with patients with diabetes, both adolescent and adult patients with diabetes, and we've also... Um, been doing a lot of work in the uh, the obesity space, um, but we've done work looking at you know communication at discharge from the hospital and helping patients after they go home from the hospital. We've done some work in patients uh, with kidney disease, where we're doing some work right now with patients in the emergency room um, who have high blood pressure. So you know we, we we're trying to do work in a in a diverse array of, of areas. Excellent. Yeah, when you think about health literacy, it really doesn't matter the condition or the um, disease they might be living with or their interaction with the system. It really is about pushing their knowledge base up. And as you look at health literacy over time and you, you improve someone's health literacy, do you then see the correlating changes in um, utilization or outcomes improvements? Yes, I, I mean, I think um, this is still uh, uh, an area 
where there's a lot of active research trying to understand what are the best approaches. Uh, we, our group has published some work specific to diabetes where we've demonstrated that using some of the health communication approaches I mentioned uh, uh, that address health literacy, such as reducing jargon and using teach-back and so forth, can improve uh, blood sugar control in patients with diabetes. And we've also done some work with our adolescents with diabetes showing that some of our um, text messaging interventions um, and, and uh, web-based interventions can help improve care for, for those patients. But I, I think more work is still needed in this space to further demonstrate the value and also to best understand what are the optimal approaches. And I think those approaches might be different for different populations, for different diseases, and so forth. Yeah, excellent. When you, that's great because it's such a broad area, and obviously you're trying to impact a person at the end of the day and get them to change their behavior. So I could imagine that while there may be a plethora of different approaches you could use, some are obviously going to fit a certain group better, even maybe based on their cultural issues, et cetera, as well as you know um, just their general knowledge. And so better understanding this, I know most companies today who think about health literacy say, oh, well, we'll just put the shotgun out there and simplify our documents because we're still yeah. waiting, I guess, for those answers as to which approach might be better than another in a certain given situation. And I know you're also involved with a company called EdLogix that does work around uh, health literacy. What sort of uh, work are you doing with them and, and, uh, and their uh, online platform and mobile platform? Yes, we've been uh, working with them uh, to help in how we can improve our assessment of the health literacy of patients who interact with the platform, and then improving how we can customize the education that is uh, sent out to patients and uh, get into some of the issues that we've talked about on the call today, which is how do we provide information to patients that's not only easier for patients to understand, but that keeps them engaged and wanting to go back and learn more over time and also motivates them for behavior change. So, you know, as you mentioned, it's very easy for a company to just take some information and, you know, sort of make it lower literacy and put it out there. But we really want to take it to the next level up. We want to not only improve the literacy level of the information, but we want to make a platform that's really customized to the individual needs of a, of a patient in terms of their own health literacy, their own uh, goals, and their own um, other psychosocial factors. And we want to make sure that the, the, the materials that we do provide uh, keeps them engaged. At Logix, for example, has been using a, a, a game approach, gamifying a lot of the materials they provide to help uh, keep patients engaged. Um, I do think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done around um, culturally tailoring materials, particularly for, for patients with limited English proficiency. And this can be a very challenging area. For example, you know, just converting something to Spanish language is not necessarily make it culturally appropriate. We have huge diversity in uh, cultural backgrounds of Spanish speakers in this country. So 
you know, a lot of times when we develop materials, it really is an interactive process uh, between the development of the materials and the patients themselves back and forth to make sure they really understand the materials and that the materials are, are motivating and engaging. Yes, and given the limited time we've got left, um, what got you interested in this field? Well, you know, I, I uh, really um, got invested in this field as a clinician. When I was training uh, to be a primary care doctor, and um, I, I think uh, one of my very first uh, forays into this was actually when I was working in a rural health clinic, and I, I saw a baby that had a very bad infection in their eyes. And I wrote uh, and gave the mom a prescription for medication that you actually needed to take by by mouth to treat the baby. Um, this was a two-week-old baby. Uh, and the mom went home, and she came back a few days later, and I then learned that instead of giving the medicine to the baby by mouth, she was actually putting the medicine right into the baby's eyes. And this sort of made sense because that's where she saw the infection, but it literally opened my eyes to how important it was for me to communicate more clearly to families to really help them understand what they need to do to take care of their own health and the health of their family. And so after that, we got much more involved in both pediatric care and then adult diabetes care and trying to understand how we can improve how we educate patients to improve their health. Wow, that's quite the story. And thank you so much, Dr. Rothman, for joining us today. Really appreciated your insights on Pop Health Week. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. And that will have to be the last word for today's broadcast. I want to thank our special guest, Dr. Russell Rothman, Vice Chancellor for Population Health Research at Vanderbilt and Director of the Vanderbilt Center for Health Services Research for his time and insights today. Do follow the center's work by proxy via Vanderbilt University Medical Center's Twitter handle at VUMC Health and check them out on the web at www.medicineandpublichealth.vanderbilt.edu until we meet again and we do hope to see you in DC at the PHA Forum for Fred Goldstein this is Greg Masters saying bye now that was winner.